Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me once again to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you will pardon me, I'm going to step over here just for a moment and uh, see if we can do something about this. Let's just unplug that. There we go. So your screen is not waving the whole time. Uh, So Luke chapter 1, we're going to read this morning verses 39 through 56. Actually, we'll start in verse 26 to set the scene. Uh, In particular, if you've not been with us, we're reading about the account, the very beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26 through verse 56, the promised birth of Jesus. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed there there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit exalts has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. Mary, in the verses that we will consider this morning, verses 46 through the end of this section, is filled with praise. Filled with praise in a way that is uh, in response to a unique promise and confirmation to her of the personal blessings that God would bring to her, and in a way that is in exemplary for us in responding to God's blessings toward us, but not just God's blessings toward us individually, but also the way that God acts overall toward all people and toward his people, his redeemed people in particular. Mary here gives a great blessing and one that we should, in fact, imitate 
But it is not just on this occasion that God has acted in this way. And Mary recognizes this fact. It is, in fact, consistent with the way that God has always acted. Mary knows what God is like. Mary sees what God does for her and she connects the dot and sings his praises. In this passage, we learn a lot about God. We learn about his faithfulness. We learn about his mercy. We learn about his holiness and, of course, his might and his power. In this passage, we learn not only what God is like and in his uh, in his abilities, but we also learn what he desires to see in people. We learn how God views people in various circumstances, and not just in those circumstances, but more importantly, what their heart is like in those circumstances. And we find that the way that God responds to people is very different than the way that we might respond to other people. Mary knows all of these things, and rather than being unhappy about it, or rather than focusing only on what God does for her, she expounds upon God's blessings for her, praising him, and she praises him for who he is. All too often today, we think that God is good only if God does things specifically for us, the things that we would want, and only if our circumstances are good. And while Mary does find herself now in a circumstance that has been turned very good, extremely good, uniquely good in some ways, she nonetheless praises God, not just for that, but for who he is and for how he always is and for how he always acts. There's a lesson here of praise for us that we ought to praise God not only for what he does for us, but also for who he is, for how he acts, that we should delight in and praise him for all of his deeds, all of his character, not just those things that immediately benefit us. And Mary shows us here a sincere example of that praise. This is a response, of course, to the promised birth of her son, whom she is to name Jesus. This is the third part of this particular uh, section of this promise. In verses 26 through 38, the angel Gabriel is sent to her and promises that she will have this particular son. This son, verse 32, is going to be great. He will be called the son of the most high. He's going to rule on David's throne. He's going to rule over the house of Jacob or Israel. He's going to do so forever. This child is going to be a special one, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Verse 35 tells us, therefore, this holy child shall be called the Son of God. This is going to be God's Son ruling over this nation of Israel. Mary's people, the ones who have been in exile and then even when exiled and returned, who have been under oppression for centuries at the hands of others and even now find themselves oppressed and ruled over by a foreign power, the Roman Empire. And here, Mary is given this promise. When she's given the promise, she is also given this additional bit of information in verse 36 that Elizabeth, her relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. We learned about that earlier in the chapter. And Elizabeth uh, is now in her sixth month of pregnancy, despite the fact that she is beyond childbearing years. So Mary decides she is going to take the hint from the angel and go visit Elizabeth. She goes the three or four day journey down south from Galilee to the territory of Judah and to the city that they lived in. And she goes into uh, Elizabeth's house, greets her and receives this miraculous confirmation from Elizabeth by virtue of the Holy Spirit prophesying through Elizabeth who the Holy Spirit filled upon hearing Mary's greeting. The baby, John the Baptist, leaps in Elizabeth's womb and Elizabeth says these wonderful things about Mary. And Mary says, that is all the proof I need. That is all the confirmation that I need to hear. She has already believed the angel Gabriel's message, but now she has that cinched and she has it, uh, she has it even more firmly promised by virtue of the Holy Spirit speaking through Elizabeth to tell Mary, look, you are uniquely blessed, and this child who is in your womb is spectacular, is wonderful, is glorious. And Mary says, now I'm going to turn and praise God. And that is how we begin this section, by looking at Mary's words of praise 
Mary's words of praise. It simply says, and Mary said. Mary said. Her words are the reaction, in fact, to the incredible confirmation she's just received. Her faith-filled humility before God meant that even though she could use further confirmation, she didn't require it to believe God's word. But even though she didn't require it, God graciously gave it to her in this miraculous form. And having received such additional confirmation at the hands of Elizabeth, Mary burst forth in praise of the Lord. Now this praise comes uh, perhaps immediately at that moment. Perhaps she thinks about this for some time afterward. In either case, this takes place from Mary's heart. Mary says these things in response to these particular things that have already taken place. And uh, the words that she speaks here are words that strongly echo the prayer of one particular person in the Old Testament by the name of Hannah. Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel. Um, I could tell you about it, but it might be easier to just read about this in the book of 1 Samuel, if you'd like to turn there with me for a moment. 1 Samuel chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 2, you have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. Uh, Just to catch you up on 1 Samuel 2, Hannah lived toward the end of the time of the judges in Israel after they had first come into the promised land. She was barren and she was very distressed over it. She was actually one of two wives of a man named Elkanah, and though he was very gracious to her in many ways and showed her love in many ways... She didn't have a child, and his other wife provoked her about this relentlessly to the point where she was constantly grieved, she was in tears, she was weeping, and very sad about this. And she prayed to God for a son, and God graciously answered this prayer for a son, and she named him Samuel. She promised to dedicate Samuel to the service of the Lord. And uh, she goes up to the temple after he has been weaned, and she leaves Samuel with the priest Eli at the temple for that particular purpose while he's still just a little boy. And upon leaving him there, uh, Hannah prays in this way, starting in verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes the Lord kills and makes alive he brings down to Sheol and raises up the Lord makes poor and rich he brings low he also exalts he raises the poor from the dust he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles to inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he set the world on them he keeps the feet of his godly ones but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness for not by might Shall a man prevail? Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. You may see here already, and if not, we'll see as we go through a number of themes that Hannah was aware of that she was seeing played out in her own life. How there is this great reversal that is going on in terms of circumstances. That God is sovereign over circumstances and it is not human might or human ability that ultimately determines where someone ends up with regard to their final fate. It is not us who is in charge of making everything happen. But ultimately it is God who is sovereign over all of these things. Now Mary, for her part, seems quite aware in her praise of God back in Luke chapter 1, 
She seems quite aware of the character of the God whom she serves. And not only that, but she is very familiar with how her ancestors have praised him for this. And there's just a, a lesson here, even before we go any further, of Mary, this one who would have been quite young. We don't know her age exactly, but still, uh, still unmarried, very young, unexpectedly going to have this baby. And she is able to articulate these truths about God. Elizabeth was said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so while she believed these words, uh, they were coming to her supernaturally. Not so with Mary. These are things that are coming from her. And they align with what God has said. And they align with what is true. But nonetheless, these are things that she knows. She knows the scriptures that are referenced through here. She knows what God is like. She has a sound theology, even from a young age. And she is able then to turn and to praise him. I wonder if we are able to do this. Can we interpret our circumstances rightly in light of God's character and who he is? Can you take a situation and say, this is what God thinks about this. And this is how God has been involved in this based not upon my feelings or my interpretation alone of the situation, but based upon what God has said about the situation. Can you rightly connect the dots of God's word and God's character and God's truth to your circumstances and to the things that happen to you? And here we find that there really is, is no one who is prevented from doing this. Again, she is a young woman. These are the kinds of things that you ought to be doing. If you're a parent, raising your kids to know God in this way. If you're a young person, you ought to say, this is not too hard for me. This is not adult stuff. This is everyone's stuff. Learn about your God. Know him and know what he is like. And determine that when things happen that are good, that you will turn and praise God in this way. And so she sees this confirmation of God's promise and she bursts forth, as Hannah once did, in praise of this God. Now in the first half of the song, or this, uh, of this praise, uh, she begins by looking at her own circumstances and describing how God has been gracious to her. And then she will broaden out her analysis of God's doings. And she will speak about how he acts, not just toward her, but toward all people. And then specifically a little bit more uh, toward different types of of people and toward those especially who belong to God. So she praises him, first of all, for his kindness shown to her. In verses 46 through 49, for God's kindness that is shown to her. And we find in verses 46 and 47, her sincere, personal praise and joy. Sincere, personal praise and joy. She says, my soul exalts the Lord greatly magnifies him. And she begins with a euphemism. My soul exalts the Lord. She says in verse 47, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. We don't often or maybe even ever speak in these terms. We simply say I. I rejoice. I exalt the Lord. But Mary here is saying something more than that. It is a way of expressing it, but it's meaningful. It's intentional. Uh, what she's saying is, this is coming from the heart. I am rejoicing. I am praising God. And I mean it. This isn't just something I feel obligated to do, but I am convinced of this. This is my conviction that God deserves this praise. And it's coming from the inside out. When she says she exalts the Lord, of course, this refers to the idea of lifting him up. Not because we can take God from a position of being low and actually ontologically make him high, what we're doing instead is simply saying we are giving God the credit he deserves for who he is. We are praising him for being already exalted. We are exalting him by recognizing that. We are speaking of him in alignment with who he actually is. And so while men are capable of being actually exalted from one position to another, as Mary will talk about, for example, in verse 52, he has exalted those who are humble. God is not capable of being lifted any higher in the absolute sense because he's already there. But we should give him the credit for being there. We should treat him and speak of him as highly as we possibly can. This is what we refer to as having a high view of God. But not just a high view of God, high praise of God, high speech about God. Treating him and speaking of him highly. 
There are many, many ways we can do this. Mary just speaks about it in general terms at this point. She will then spell out the ways in which she's exalting the Lord later on. But uh, the ways that we might do this are talking about how his characteristics, his attributes are actually as good as they are. How they're greater than us. How he made us. How he sustains us. We can talk about God as being right even if we are wrong. We can say, as Paul said in Romans 3, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. We can say, as Paul said in Romans chapter 9, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? We can say that God is always right, and God is always just, and God always does what he should do, even if we don't understand how it's right, even if we don't understand why he did it or how he's pulling it off. Even when things don't make sense to us, we start with the absolute foundation that cannot be moved, that God is always, always good and just. And God is always true. And we praise him for that. We praise him for his grace. We praise him for his kindness. We praise him for his blessings. We praise him for everything. And Mary, again, we'll talk about specific things, but this is what she's doing. She is exalting the Lord. We know what it's like to exalt someone. We exalt people's names all the time. We speak, about the way, we speak about them in ways that would tend to increase their reputation or their, our view of them. And we say, did you see that thing that person did? Did you see how kind they were? Did you see how good this person is? Did you see what the kind of character that this person had? Did you see how quickly they solved that problem? Or did you see that thing that they built or that feat they accomplished? We exalt people all the time. And in one sense, there's nothing wrong with doing this, but... We need to make sure that we are exalting the one who is exalted above all. No one is more appropriate to exalt than the Lord himself. And so she says, my soul exalts the Lord. And verse 47, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. God, my Savior. What a loaded phrase this is. God, my Savior. Uh, Sometimes... We do not understand God in this way. We might come to him and say, well, I come to the Bible and I know that Jesus is a savior. I mean, that's what he's called, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But God, he's different. God the Father, he's the angry one. He's the one who's maybe he created us and then he's going to bring wrath. But Jesus, he's the savior. This is just not the way that scripture describes him. There is no distinction in these attributes between the son and the father. They are the same in these attributes. And so they both are the savior. God is the savior. And he is inclined in this way. Why do you think Jesus was sent into the world in the first place? It wasn't that he pled with God and said, Just go easy on them and let me go do this and be kind to them, even though you're not so inclined. This is not the way God operates. God is one who saves. And this is why Paul can say in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that God is our Savior. He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants to save people. That is his inclination. This is his disposition. This is what he is like. This is what he does. And so here, Mary understands this. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. But of course, this also uh, speaks about a particular angle of salvation that sometimes we might forget about. Now, the primary way that we think about salvation very typically is we think about it in terms of the forgiveness of sins and the redemption that comes in Jesus Christ. And, of course, that is foundational on the individual level for every single person who would ever live. Jesus Christ came into the world as a Savior. God wants all men to be saved in the spiritual sense. And what that means is we all have sinned against God. We all are guilty before God. We have all rebelled against his standards. And we all need forgiveness or else we're going to be judged according to that standard. And we will be in hell. We will be punished eternally for our rebellion against a holy and perfect God. And so we need to be saved in the way that only Jesus' blood provides for because he came into the world to be a substitute a sacrifice he came to stand in our place so that if we put our faith in him if we cry out to him if we turn from our sins and trust in him our sins are washed away he bears the penalty for our sins 
This is the spiritual side of salvation. And we are granted eternal life. The Holy Spirit comes to us. And he seals us in Christ. We are granted adoption as sons. We become God's people. We have the hope of eternal life. But there is more in mind even than that when it comes to God's purposes. When it comes to what God is going to do. God is a savior with regard to that which qualifies people in the first place to even have anything else happen to them. But he also is a deliverer in the bigger picture sense. God is one who comes to someone like Mary and someone who is under this oppressive governmental political empire who is over the nation keeping God's promises from a human perspective from being fulfilled and he deals with that as well because he is giving Jesus not only to redeem a people but also to reign over them and he is giving Jesus not only to fulfill the promise of a coming sacrifice but also the promise of a coming king and so verse 32 he says he's going to give him the throne of his father David in verse 33 he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end God is a savior in a multifaceted way God is a comprehensive savior. God does far more than we can imagine. And God saves not only our souls from the judgment that would come in eternal hell, but also he saves earthly, circumstantially. Not at the very moment that we become Christians does he change these things. In fact, they might get worse. But one day when he makes his promise good of Jesus coming to reign over the nations of the earth and to reign on the throne of David and to reign over the house of Jacob forever, then God will be shown to be this savior in an even greater way than we often even give him credit for. And so God saves completely. He saves from sin's penalty when we are redeemed. He saves from its power by virtue of his ongoing work through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. He saves from sin's presence when we are one day delivered out of the body of this death, of this flesh, into a glorified body in the future. And he even delivers Israel, his people, as he says here in these texts. And as we'll see in a moment, he raises up those who are humble and who are oppressed in their circumstances. And this, of course, then points to the fact that we need such a savior we need such a savior mary needed a savior but we do as well and of course we all have problems don't we we're very um we're very uh resolved in many cases to fix those problems and to do so on our own and there's a certain uh goodness to that where we say there's a situation i've got a problem i gotta figure this out i've gotta fix this you know to have agency and to be resourceful and to work hard and to problem solve these are things that are that are good for us to do rather than being lazy and not trying to do anything about them but at the end of the day all of us have to realize there's a limitation to what we can do there's a limitation to how we can change our circumstances and uh, we then look to other people for that we look for help and sometimes we look to people and put our hope in people that we should not put our hope in Uh, We can want things to be better. I mean, if you have a bad boss, it would be great to have a better one for them to get better at being your boss or for them perhaps even to to be replaced with someone else. Uh, It would be better to have rulers over you who feared the Lord and who did what he wanted and who had wisdom rather than people who didn't have those attributes but all too often nonetheless we put the entirety of our hope in those people and those circumstances and those instrumentalities rather than recognizing that at the end of the day the only one who can save us from all of our problems is God himself and so we looked at him and we see what Mary sees which is this is the one who does these things for us and we can look at that and not say well I guess I've got to wait for all that to happen Well, that's not the way that I wanted it done. I want it changed here and now. Or I wanted it done in this way. Instead, we look at this down payment of God's entire salvation. And we say, what a gracious God that he is like this. This instance is the indication that God is going to do all of this. And so we say, God, we praise you, the one who is the Savior. Mary did this and she did it from the heart. You notice it says, my soul and my spirit. These are not uh, two separate parts of Mary. They're two different angles on internal, sincere praise. We might say something like, I feel this in my heart. And we might say, I I feel this in my bones. And 
both of these are not saying, well, I feel one of these things in this part of my body and one of these things in this other part of my body. It's not about that. It's just different ways of emphasizing the fact that it's in us. This is what I believe. I am convinced of this. This is how I feel. This is earnest. And here Mary says the same thing. My soul, my spirit rejoices and praises God. We ought, by the way, to do both of these things, to speak praise to God from the heart and to acknowledge this and also to find joy in what he has done. If we're not doing this, perhaps we are not making the time, clearing out enough just to even consider the things that God has done. Or we don't find joy in what God has done for us because our judgment has been clouded by other ways of thinking. Or we forget about the things that God has done. Or we're prioritizing the wrong things so that we can't rejoice in what God tells us is so good because we've been convinced of things that we should desire instead. Mary was thinking rightly about this and we should follow her example. Now, in addition to this sincere personal praise, we also find here that she has a recognition of her personal blessing. Her personal blessing. Verse 48 and 49 tells us about this. It says, he has had regard or he has looked upon he has noticed the humble state of his bond slave. She, of course, does view herself as belonging to the Lord. And she understands herself personally to have been in a humble state. Now, we could easily mistake this for a, a humble heart. Mary had that, but that's not what she's referring to in this particular verse. What she is referring to is her humble station, her situation that she finds herself in. And what she goes on to say in verses 51 to 53 tells us about that when she's talking about how God is able to change the circumstances of people who are in these sort of humble circumstances. Uh, she's also not here talking about her barrenness as if she was you know, somehow humbled by not having a child. Uh, this is not the situation she found herself in. Like Elizabeth, who had been married for a long time and was old, this is very different than Mary. So this has to be just about her general circumstances. Mary living uh, in obscurity or poverty, as it turns out, we'll read in chapter 2, uh, something that indicates for us that Mary and Joseph were actually pretty poor. They had to offer the poor man's version of the sacrifice as prescribed in the law of Moses when Jesus uh, went up to the temple for his circumcision after he was born. So she is in a position that's just not very important. She's not rich. She's not elite. She's not noble. She's kind of a nobody little girl, and yet God has looked upon her. God has uh, given her his attention. What an amazing thing. We sometimes take this for granted, don't we? We think about God as being the God who knows everyone, who sees everything. But here, I mean, she's indicating that unlike the world, which looks around and says, you're important, I care about you. You're rich, I care about you. You're attractive, I care about you. You're powerful, I'm going to notice you. God looks upon someone who doesn't really have anything to offer the world and says, I see you. I know you're there. This is what God can do. We are not hidden from God. For bad for those who want to hide their sin, but for those who want to honor him, God is not prevented from doing so and from, honoring, from, uh, from blessing us or from seeing us by virtue of our humble estate. He is able to see anyone, anywhere. And so she says about herself, for behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. This sounds like such a bold statement. And yet she recognizes the significance of what has happened here. I mean, she is going to be the mother of the Savior of all mankind. She is going to be the mother of this final ruler, this Christ, of the Son of God. Uh, perhaps, if anything, she might be underselling this. Of course, she's not because she's speaking divine truth. But uh, she recognizes that her life is never going to be the same and her reputation is definitely never going to be the same. And her fame is not going to be limited to a few people around her or in her family or in her town or in Elizabeth's town, but to basically everyone. Now, of course, some throughout history, particularly of a Roman Catholic persuasion, have gone too far and counted her as too blessed, exalting her to too high of a position. And it is possible to bless Mary to too great of an extent and to think too highly of her. But it is true that she was greatly blessed because she became the mother of the Son of God, the mother of the Savior. What a great blessing this is. Anyone would love for that to be the case. And so she as well 
is in this position in reality and all generations will recognize that she in fact is blessed by virtue of this. She goes on and says, For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. He is all powerful and he is holy. He is holy in his uh, morality, of course, meaning he never sins. He never does anything wrong. This is an attribute that we can share in some way. We are not as perfect in our moral holiness as he is, but nonetheless, we strive to be holy like him. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, To be holy in all your conduct, as it is written, you shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. 1 Peter 1 tells us this. Uh, and yet there is a way in which God is holy that we cannot share. We cannot imitate. God is holy even in comparison to perfectly holy creatures. And so the angels in Isaiah chapter 6 who have never sinned, will never sin, can't even look upon him and their feet are covered and their eyes are covered and they cry out what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Even compared to perfectly sinless creatures, God is holy. In his majesty, he is the holy one. Isaiah 57 15 echoes or really precedes Mary's praise. Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. Mary rightly identifies him as this. He is mighty and he is holy. He has done these great things for her and his name is holy. This is who he is. And so Mary praises him. She recognizes the individual blessing upon her, and she praises God for his kindness shown to her. But it goes beyond that. Mary takes the opportunity not only to praise God for what she has done, for what he has done for her, but she also now broadens that out, expands it, and says, this is what you are doing. She recognizes that there are bigger things going on than what is going on in her life. She recognizes that the blessings that God has given her are the means by which God intends to bless other people. And not just a few other people, but a whole nation and really a whole world. And so she praises him, not only what he's done for her, but now for his mercy shown to Israel. She praises him for his mercy shown to Israel. Now, it is not only that he shows this mercy to Israel, but... Uh, the things that he says demonstrate that this is his character and that these things are in many ways applicable not only to that nation, but to anyone and everyone because God is concerned with a particular type of heart and a certain type of disposition toward him and a response to him. And he shows favor even to those who are outside of that particular covenant nation. But it begins with uh, praising God for his mercy toward those who fear him. Verse 50. His mercy, she says, is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. This is a very clear reference to the 103rd Psalm, a psalm that you should become very familiar with if you want a place to start and you're not familiar with the Psalms. Uh, it says, But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children. But this is the third time in just a few verses in Psalm 103 that this concept shows up of fearing God. In verse 11, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. And in Psalm 103, 13, it says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And so his loving kindness, his righteousness, his compassion is toward such people as this. Well, that ought to make you think, I want to be a person like this who receives these benefits. What kind of person is that? It's a person who fears God. Well, what does that mean? Well, to put it in perspective, we can contrast that with the fear of man. What is the fear of man? Well, when you fear man, you're controlled by what other people think. You, your life and your decisions and your thinking and your actions, your words, everything about you is controlled by what's going to happen to me at the hands of other people if I speak or act in this way. This is what it means. And you consider this and it controls your decisions. It controls where you go, who you're with, how you dress, how you talk. It controls what you write about. It controls uh, the, the things that you do, the activities of your life. And you do this because you think that they're worthy of being followed or conformed to because of how they can treat you in response. Now, of course, there are all kinds of ways where uh, that's a problem, not least of which is 
they're very unpredictable into as far as how they actually will respond and that the promise given of uh, the praise of men is actually uh, very often not fulfilled and we seek to fear man because we think man can give us something but it doesn't really actually pay off that much in the end and it's kind of just a, a bottomless pit of throwing effort into and not receiving the payback at least in, as fully as we aim for. With God on the other hand when we fear him we're controlled by him. We believe certain things are true about God. We know what he likes. We know what he doesn't like. We know his power and his ability to respond to us and to treat us in response in certain ways. And then the fear of God ends up being the controlling influence in our lives. It means more than anything in this life, we are driven by our view of God. What he's like, what he does, and a concern for what he thinks about us. This concept, by the way, also often uh, includes other elements besides just the concept of fear. It involves not only fearing God in, in the sense of being afraid of his judgment to at least start, but also serving and worshiping him. In the book of Acts, we find people called God-fearers or God-fearing Gentiles. The prophet Jonah, who was very much not fearing the Lord in practice by running away from him in the ship, when asked who his God was, says, I fear Yahweh, the God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He spoke of it as kind of a formal term that means this is my religion. This is who I worship. That's how much the fear of the Lord came to be associated with all that is involved in religious worship. And so it involves worship, a recognition of your place before God. It involves belief in his great power, in his righteous character. It involves a purity of devotion to him and an awareness of his always watching eye. The fear of God is a wonderful tool in our holiness because we can take it with us wherever we go. We're not dependent upon what other people think. Uh, even human accountability only goes so far because they don't know the heart and they're limited in space to where they can be. But God is one whom we can fear and we can uh, benefit from that at every point in our lives. Some people today object to this kind of terminology with regard to Christianity. They say Christians shouldn't fear God because God loves us and love is greater than fear. And as 1 John 4 says, perfect love casts out fear. Well, that proof text fails to properly nuance in light of the many other passages in the Bible. And to say that we should not fear God is not only extremely dangerous for our sanctification, but it's also just straight anti-biblical. The Bible speaks of fearing God not only for those who have not yet been saved and need to be driven to God by that fear of judgment, but also for believers in Christ. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 says, therefore having these promises, beloved, think about that, promises and beloved, people who are in Christ, who have promises from God, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in what? The fear of God. The fear of God. And Acts 9.31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up. And going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. The fear of the Lord is not just something that is permissible for Christians. It's something that is essential for Christians. We must fear God. And of course, this is not just an obligation but it's something that is a condition of a tremendous blessing. And it leads us to be able to get something. Namely, God's mercy. We love to find God's mercy. Sometimes, unfortunately, we take it for granted. But as it says, the one who will find the fullness of God's mercy is the one who fears him. And so verse 50 says that his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. And this uh, sort of spills over into what Mary now says in the next three verses because it has to do with our disposition before God. Are we going to be apathetic or even hostile toward what God thinks of us? Or are we going to put ourselves in the proper place before God? When we fear him, that is characterized by another type of uh, behavior that we have or another type of attitude, which is found in verses 51, which is humility. And there's a contrast between the humble and 
the lofty. And in fact, that's what Mary talks about here. She praises God for God's treatment of both the humble and the lofty. The humble and the lofty. Now, just to be careful as we go into this, there are many people today who will very much oversimplify the kinds of concepts that are here in these next verses. We need to be careful not to do that. The message that is here is not some generic, automatic, great reversal of circumstances. God does not look at the world and say, whatever circumstances you have in this life will be exactly mirrored and reversed in the life to come. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, if you're poor, you're going to be rich in the next life. And if you're rich, you're going to be poor. He doesn't do that. He doesn't just automatically do a great switcheroo. But the message is, he is capable of doing so. He has done so in the past for certain individuals. And he will do so now and in the future for other individual people. But he does so on the basis of their attitude before him. That is the key. That is the distinction. And so we go through these verses. We see he has done mighty deeds with his arm. This is a symbol of his activity. Psalm 136 verses 11 and 12 says he brought Israel out from their midst for his loving kindness is everlasting with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. It's a picture of his power. It says he has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. God has this capacity and he has done so in the past. Maybe you look around and you see people who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. And you say, they just, they can't keep doing this, right? And even now we're coming up on a time of the year where there's an entire month where people celebrate pride in a particular type of conduct in utter defiance of the God who created them. And yet God knows their thoughts. You don't have to wonder whether he sees what's going on. He's perfectly capable of scattering those who will not humble themselves and repent of such things. But on the other end of the spectrum, of course, these are not the only ones who are proud. Later in the Gospel of Luke, we'll find many people, Pharisees and other teachers, who are themselves extremely boastful toward God. One Pharisee looked at a repentant tax collector and had the nerve to tell God how glad he was that he wasn't like that sinner. And Jesus said, that guy didn't go home to his house justified before God. He's still in his sins. There are a lot of ways of defying God's standard in your pride, whether it's outright rebellion or whether it is self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and thinking that you don't need a Savior. Either way, God has the ability to scatter and the track record of doing so. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Saul, the first king of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar, his descendant Belshazzar. These are people who are in lofty positions People in exalted positions feel like they're safe from these kinds of things. That's part of the reason why they pursue that. Nebuchadnezzar himself said, what God is there who can save you from my hand? And of course, he found out the hard way multiple times. We look at rulers and we feel helpless. And we might be tempted to think that the only solution is human instrumentality of our involvement. But God is not limited to just what man can do. And he has ways of getting people not only out of, but into whatever positions he desires. And that's what he says in the second half of the verse. He has exalted those who were humble. Think about Joseph, who had been sent to prison. Think about David, the lowly shepherd that God exalted to be king over Israel. Think about Mordecai, the uncle of Queen Esther. God takes people from humble positions. He sets them into positions of great power. And this is not just a fairy tale or a movie plot. And even though it isn't the norm, it is well within God's capacity and it is on his track record. And so the message here is God is great and powerful. And you should not be proud if you're in a high position. And you shouldn't fret and worry if you're in a low one. Because God is able to take care of you. Mary was a part of an oppressed nation. And uh, yet she is able to see God's promise at work here and to praise him for this another reversal in verse 53 he has filled the hungry with good things and he has sent away the rich empty-handed this is talking about basic provision the rich have plenty they're never worried and yet he says by the time God's done with them they're going to be starving 
And here, those who are worried about their food, the hungry, those who literally are actually hungry, not just who are a little bit late for a meal, not just those who didn't quite get enough, but those who have no food, they're in danger of starvation. And he says he is able to take them and to change those circumstances. Um, This doesn't, of course, mean that God will send away all rich people empty-handed. It means that he has done that before and he can do it again. God treats people the way that he wants to treat them. And the standard, of course, then, is what is their disposition toward God? Are they proud? Are they exalted in their hearts? Or are they humble? To the proud, he opposes them. He brings them low. To the humble, he shows them mercy. He takes care of them. And it doesn't mean that they will always have something. In fact, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4.11, to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. But it does mean that if one of God's people finds himself in a tough spot, it's not because God can't get you out of it or because he doesn't mean good, but because he has a perfect reason for you to be there. And one day he will make all things right. Mary concludes by praising God for his kindness according to his promise. We'll see much more about this in Zechariah's prophecy, but she recognizes that this promise is uh, consistent with what God has done in helping her nation, Israel, his servant. This nation has been set apart to be a particular servant to God. Uh, He made a promise, a promise to be merciful. And as he says here in verse 55, as she says, he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. God made a promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. And then to Abraham's son, Isaac. And then to Isaac's son, Jacob, who was also then named Israel. And he made these promises that they would be blessed and that they would be a blessing to the whole earth. And some of these things weren't exactly going on at this moment, just as they hadn't been at various points in Israel's history. But God is merciful toward them. He is kind In Judges chapter 10, Israel is suffering, 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 and yet they repent and they call upon him, and it says that the Lord could endure their suffering no longer. So he promises to Abraham and his descendants forever, these sons of Abraham, that they would receive this blessing. As we'll see later on in Luke, you can be a son of Abraham in the spiritual sense by simply believing in Christ, believing the gospel. And we get incorporated into so many of these promises as well. But here she is praising God for his faithfulness because he is looking out for what he has said that he will do. This is what God does and he is merciful toward his people. Well, verse 56 tells us the end of the story here with regard to Mary. Mary stayed with her with Elizabeth about about three months and then returned to her home. Very simply, this is Mary's stay and departure. Looks like she was there until sometime in the ninth month. And as you know... That means it's about time for the friends to depart and for Elizabeth to be able to have her baby. And when we're together next time, we will hear more about that. For now, I hope this exhorts you to praise God for his goodness to you and to everyone and to humble your heart before him so that you also might receive all the blessings that come from God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are a God who is so kind and so powerful and that you do good to your people may we humble ourselves before you and may our humble hearts spring forth in songs of praise we ask in jesus name amen